Okay, before we get started, we've got a couple of announcements just to remind everyone about. There will not be a Bible class this Thursday night because it is Thanksgiving, and this is a time when uh, many of us will be either here or gone, but we'll be uh, very involved with our families. So no, uh, no class on Thursday. Then we'll have our annual Thanksgiving slash Christmas luncheon on December 9th. And tonight's lesson is important for us in relation to that because we're going to do something different. And we'll, we'll talk about it some tonight and part of our lesson tonight and next week as well. Uh, there's sign-up sheets that will be put up by this Sunday morning so that everybody can uh, pick the desserts and the side dishes that they will provide. The church will furnish the meat. And then in December, there will be communion two Sundays. We will have it on December the 9th, and then we'll have it again on the Sunday before Christmas, December the 23rd. Please keep those things on your calendar. Now, my voice sounds a little weak tonight. I don't know what's been going on the last couple of weeks, but it comes and goes, and I don't know if it's some allergy thing or just what it is. I talked to the doctor last week, and he seemed to think it was related to just the general um, allergy congestion that we in Houston always face, but I've never had it quite like this or as long, so we need to... Uh, you know, pray that that will resolve itself soon and not be anything serious. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not for I am with thee. Be not dismayed. Dismayed, for I am thy God, I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we need to be spiritually prepared. This is uh, something that is true throughout the scripture, that we sin. And when we sin, we're no longer walking uh, by the Holy Spirit, walking in the light. We're no longer... Uh, walking according to the truth, we're walking according to the sin nature. And so we have to be cleansed, we have to recover, and so we confess our sins, and we're told in 1 John 1, 9 that God is faithful and just to not only forgive us the sins that we have uh, admitted or acknowledged to him, but he wipes the slate clean and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Such a wonderful privilege. We have no idea the burden of guilt that many Christians suffer under because they don't understand this, and that many unbelievers suffer under the, the struggles that they have because their conscience has not been resolved and they it convicts them 
And some of us who have been Christians a long time have forgotten just exactly what that's like. But that is the great good news that we have forgiveness in Christ. So let's bow our heads together after a few moments of silent prayer. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's such a privilege we have to come together as a body of believers, to corporately come together to worship you at any time that we are studying your word. It is a time of, of worship, a time where we submit to your authority, a time where we humble ourselves under your mighty hand, a, a time where your word can convict us and rebuke us and correct us and teach us the right way to live and how we should think and how we should live. And Father, for so many, pride and arrogance and self-absorption just gets in the way. We're thankful we have forgiveness. We're thankful for Christ who died for us. And Father, we're thankful for your word and that your word itself sanctifies us uh, by the content that is in it. And so Father, now as we study and as we reflect upon some things about worship that are not always taught well or understood well, that we might have a, an attitude where we can see a change in our own thinking in these areas. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, last week I came down with this cold or whatever it was, which didn't last very long, but uh, we had a a review lesson from the Colossian series where I was also talking about worship and music, and so that was, I think, good for everybody. But what I was going to go with in the next in this series on worship has to do with the uh, the what happened in the both the corruption of worship in the history of Israel and then the reformations that occurred talking about Solomon and Hezekiah and Josiah and understanding the the, the trends that occurred up until the uh, Babylonian captivity. I'm going to take move that out of order because I had sort of arranged things so that today we would talk about something specific, and it will probably take two Bible classes to cover this. And so we're going to look at what the Bible teaches about thanksgiving and prayer. I thought it was appropriate since day after tomorrow is the 22nd of November and we celebrate our national holiday of thanksgiving where we are not thankful for the turkey, we are not thankful for the football games, we are thankful to God for all of the many things that he has done in the last year. We should be thankful every day. This is, as we'll see in our study tonight, something that is supposed to be at the very heart of our Christian life, uh, being reflexively thankful to God and praising him. The reality is that that's not true. That's not true even for those who are pretty mature spiritually. It just goes against our self-absorbed sin nature, and it is a practice and a discipline and a mindset that we need to cultivate. 
an attitude where we realize and are thankful for everything. As Paul says twice, we give thanks in all things and for for all things. And that thanksgiving is part of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in our lives. That when we are filled by means of the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18, we not only sing, because it's, it's joyful, it's rejoicing, but we are thankful. And sometimes we just lose sight of that. And I don't think that in a lot of churches they do a biblically defined good job of that. Okay, uh, it's not taught well, and it's not understood well. And unfortunately, what I've witnessed in a lot of churches is that pastors assume that people know more than they know. And I've realized that over the years that while we have a great congregation and we have a lot of people who have learned a lot and grown a lot and know a lot, and understand a lot and demonstrate that maturity by the things that they talk about and the things that they are involved in. We have new people constantly coming into the congregation that uh, need to learn these things and they need to grow and they need to mature and so they, they, they need to be taught. But we always, every one of us has this fight with our sin nature and constantly growing. So we need to learn what it means to be biblically thankful, and what it means biblically to praise God. And so the focal point of our study tonight and next week is going to be on the book of Psalms. And as we go through a variety of Psalms, I'm not really exegeting my way through these Psalms, we'll be summarizing a lot, is looking for patterns of how we give thanks, are to give thanks to God and how we are to give to praise God. The book of Psalms is a book that God revealed to us to teach us about the content of our singing, to teach us about prayer, and to teach us how to give thanks and to praise God. The book of Psalms is in the center of our Bible. When you just hold your Bible up and let it flop open in the middle, that's you'll find yourself in the book of Psalms. It's the longest book in the Bible. It's 150 uh, psalms or chapters. And these psalms were the songbook of Israel. It's their hymn book. It is a divinely revealed, a divinely inspired uh, hymn book. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, but there were certainly psalms that predated David. We know about the Song of Miriam in Exodus, and, this, and we know that Psalm 90, a couple of other psalms are Psalms of Moses. We know that there are a couple of others that are included that were probably written before David. We also have Judges 5, which is the Song of Deborah, and there were other psalms that the Israelites sang as part of their worship. But David is the one, as we've been studying in worship, who changed things, who ratcheted things up. He, he brought things to a new level, and it's all related to this event where the Ark of the Covenant is brought into Jerusalem, and there's the purchase of the threshing floor of Aruna the, the Hittite, um, uh, Aruna the Jebusite, rather, and he is. this is the place on Mount Moriah, where Abraham had gone to sacrifice Isaac. 
And so we see how God runs these, ties these patterns together and connects the dots down through, down through history. But David is the one who wrote a large number, I think it's around 75 or 80, of the Psalms. There were others. There was Asaph, who was a choir director, the music leader that he appointed, who was just an absolutely brilliant man musically as well as in terms of lyrics. And that became the backbone of the hymn book of Israel. And that was approximately 1,000 years before Christ. And so as the the Psalms that we have are mostly written before the exile. There are some that were added after the exile, and I believe that the order and organization that we have of the of the book of Psalms was put together uh, perhaps by Ezra after the return from, from Babylon, and uh, we're not sure who the final compiler was who organized them the way they're organized. But this occurred, and this was the songs that were sung over and over again. And the people of Israel memorized these psalms, and they knew them so that when Jesus came, and you have uh, Jesus coming into coming into Jerusalem, uh, when he is uh, coming in on what we call Palm Sunday, Sunday, what some call the triumphal entry, I'm not sure that's the best term for it, Uh, We studied that as we went through Matthew last year. The people just broke out in joyful singing, singing Psalm 118, and they they all knew this. So people knew these hymns and knew these songs, psalms that they were singing, and they they were part of their life. But then when you have the great transition from the age of Israel to the church age, the psalms were still sung. For the next 1,600 years, until approximately 100 years after the Protestant Reformation, they were singing the Psalms. The churches did not write other hymns and Psalms, not until you get into the uh, 17th century, into the 1600s, that you have hymns being written. And we'll talk about that uh, a little bit as we go go along, and when they began to write these hymns in the post-Reformation era, they were largely doctrinal. There were some hymns that were written in the Middle Ages. We sing some of those, but it really wasn't until you get into that post-Reformation period that the writing of hymns really blossoms. There, If you read them, they are restating what the Scripture teaches about who God is and who Christ is, and what he did on the cross. It's doctrinal in content. It is designed to teach, to instruct, to remind, and to focus our attention upon God, not upon ourselves. They understood that from the Psalms, and one of the things that we'll we'll be seeing is that the focus in the Psalms, even when David or whomever the psalm writer was, is in really deep trouble. They don't give us a lot of information about the details of that trouble. It's not about them. None of the Psalms is really about the problems that the people faced. It's about the God who solved the problems and that he solved the problems and how he solved the problems and rejoicing and in, in that and attributing to him the glory 
for solving the problems, and that's that's what praise is. But what we've seen in the 20th century, mid-20th century, a shift that began to occur, and I think it's a reflection of what began to happen in the evangelical church. As evangelical theology became more watered down, as the content from pulpits became more watered down, as a shift occurred toward uh, toward entertainment, and as our culture became more uh, narcissistic and self-absorbed, that that was manifest in the these new choruses that came along, and it's problematic. They they're weak. They have um, problems with doctrine in many areas. Uh, often they focus on generating the kind of emotion that historically was produced by people who could think and could think about the words and reflected on the words and were struck deep in the soul by the profundity of what was said. Now, what happens is if you're not very deep and you're not familiar with Scripture and you can't think profoundly about what is being said, then or you don't care because you've forgotten about the Lord and you're just there pro forma, then what happens is that you're, uh, you, you stir up those emotions some other way, through three theatrics, through emotion, through entertainment, uh, through a change in the style of music so that it's the music and it's the entertainment and it's secondary things like smoke, like darkening the windows, darkening the room, so that you try to m- manufacture these these emotions that should be the result of a humble heart and a mind submitted to Scripture. But because that's not really there, because it's been there's the shortcuts being taken, you, the attempt is to create that those emotions. Uh, superficially, and, and that's sad. And one of the things that you should note in hymns, hymn writers are not perfect, they're not inspired by God, and that was a lot of the criticism in the early uh, seventh, uh, 18th century uh, about hymns is that they weren't inspired by God, and in fact, in some uh, Reformed and Presbyterian circles, they just sang the Psalms. For for you know, well into the 1700s, and um, and as new hymns were being written, and as we look at them, evaluate them, some are great hymns. Some of them need to be tweaked a little bit, because the writers were trying to fit a certain rhythm or rhyme pattern, and so sometimes the words that they chose may not be the most doctrinally uh, correct. For example, one of my favorite hymns is the hymn, And Can It Be?, written by Charles Wesley. Tremendous hymn, tremendous words. But there's a line in in there, in the second verse, I believe it's the second verse, Christ emptied himself of all but love. Now, we know that that concept of Christ emptying himself, that language comes out of Philippians chapter 2, but that's not what the kenosis is. It is when Jesus willingly restricted the use of his divine attributes 
in order to fulfill the Father's plan for salvation. But we've changed the words in our hymnal to emptied himself because of love. And so that has refined it, focused it, and without losing the rhythm or losing the beat, and it's made it more theologically uh, uh, correct. Now, God breathed out these hymns for us for a variety of reasons. Now, there are some folks, and we all know folks like this, they would just as soon always come to Bible class and just have a theology lesson. But that only addresses one part of our soul. But there's another part of our soul that is proper, put in its proper place is emotion. And emotion is a response to God. But that response is not freewheeling emotion. It is uh, governed by our thinking. And singing often impacts our emotions. That's why it's so very, very dangerous to use bad singing, bad hymns or these superficial choruses when we sing because it does have an impact on people's souls that's not the proper one. And so, sadly, when when we come together and talk about things like praising God, what's the first thing that comes in a lot of people's mind? If we say, well, let's, let's praise God, immediately think about singing. That's how you praise God. That's not biblical. That is one way praise was expressed, but that's not what biblical praise is limited to. And same thing with the word worship, and often they refer to the pastor now as the pastor, but the guy who leads the singing is the worship leader. And see, again, you've really truncated the word. You, you, you putting the emphasis on something that is more shallow and superficial. So this is, this is a, a great challenge. We have to realize that God gave us a pattern in a variety of hymns, different genre of hymns. You have lament hymns, you have thanksgiving hymns, you have declarative praise hymns, uh, all of these different kinds of, of psalms. They're designed to give us a pattern for the writing of words to praise God. They are to teach us also how to pray. One of the things that is helpful is to pray the psalms, memorize psalms, and then pray them back to God. You can change a few words if you want to to make it more personal or directly related to your own circumstances. But that teaches us how to pray more uh, uh, in, in a more sophisticated way than a lot of people are used to. It also teaches us how to give thanks. You want to learn how to express your thanks to God, read the Thanksgiving Psalms, read uh, prayers of thanksgiving stated by Paul and Peter and other gospel writers and, uh, and our Lord in the gospels. Uh, that teaches us how to give thanks, and we go to the scripture to learn how to praise God. And all of this is part of our spiritual life and our worship because worship and praise is a byproduct of a believer who is growing in a healthy manner and walking by the Spirit. 
And so often that's been lost. It's like the singing is just something we add on to Sunday morning as an afterthought when Ephesians 5.19 tells us it's the first elements in the result of being filled by means of the Spirit. It's, it's expressing joyfully uh, to God what He has done for us and our gratitude and, and thanks for that. And so... As I've been studying in this worship series, I'm coming to realize um, a different level of our that we should cultivate in our personal relationship with God. And that's what we see with David expressing these things and talking about uh, all of these different things. And so to begin with, we need to understand a little bit about thanksgiving and praise. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 50. That's one of the first places where uh, where we will begin. And one of the things I want you to think about that, that we're going to do a little different when we have our Christmas, our Thanksgiving Christmas luncheon, is when we finish, and you'll see some parallels with what happened in the in the scripture. Usually they gave praise first and ate later, but after church I think we'll eat first and, and then uh, praise and call upon people to give them the opportunity to praise God for the way in which he has worked in your life in some way in the past year. Now, the problem is that a lot of us have been at services where people have done that. And there's always somebody who stands up and they spend, they talk for five minutes. It's all about them. It's all about their problem. They want to make sure everybody understands all the details about their surgery or all the details about the problems they had with the car or everything that happened to them at Harvey. And one of the things that we're going to see as we look through these psalms when David or the other writers of the psalms are praising God, it's very short. There's a very short summary of what happened. God, I cried out to you. I was in the pit. That's it. And I deliver, and you delivered me. And then it's all about God and what they learned about God and what God taught them about trusting him and relying upon him. And so that the focus in the Psalms is not about our problem and all the things we had to deal with, but it's really a focus on who God is, what he provided, and it's a focus on uh, summarizing what you learned from that. And it doesn't have to be very long. It just can be something that's that's very, very short. So one, one of the reasons we're doing this is a prep. And I'm hoping that others who aren't here who live stream and who listen will catch on to this before we have our December the 9th luncheon. Because when we finish, we'll call and just open the floor to people if anybody wishes to share something about how God has has worked in their life because this is an element of weakness in the contemporary church. You go to some churches and they spend a lot of time doing this and it's really poorly done. And people talk too much. They talk about themselves too much and it's not about God and they really haven't been taught how to do this. I mean, I've been in a lot of churches where they've had, whether it's been in a Sunday school class or it's been at a some sort of Thanksgiving service, 
I think a lot of us have been at those things. And you just feel uncomfortable because somebody stands up and starts talking and they really haven't thought about it. That's not, uh, they, some people want to be spontaneous, but spontaneous spontaneity does not mean that you haven't given it some thought and preparation before you come and you and you say something and it doesn't have to be long it can just be something very simple i had a health problem this last year we prayed about it the family prayed about it people in the church prayed about it and and god provided healing through uh the doctor through surgery and through that, I was just moved to trust God more to understand what it meant means to truly rely upon him to get me through a difficult time. And, and that's a biblical statement of praise. It's a focus on God, his grace. Talk about how God, I don't deserve any of this. In fact, I should probably have died because of all the sins in my life. But God healed me and gave me an opportunity to continue to uh, talk about who he is and to tell others how how he healed me and how he provided for me. So uh, we look at the scriptures to get our our pattern our pattern for 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 that. So let's look at uh, a little bit at Psalm uh, Psalm fifty uh, before we get into it. So let's just get let me give you a little bit of a of a definition. Of praise, praise, thanksgiving is when we tell God what He has done for us, and we express our gratitude to Him about that. Praise is when we express to others what God has done for us and how He has worked in our life, and it's done in a way that will encourage others because if you stand up and you say this last year I faced a major health problem or I had a financial calamity because of some things that happened with uh, uh, with Harvey, for example, and God provided in most amazing ways and I just had to learn to walk day by day. I had no idea what would happen the next day or how the bills would get paid and God would provide money would show up. God is so good. His, his, he knows what we're going through. Uh, before we go through it, he provides for it. And what somebody here is going to hear that they're going to be going through some problem and they're going to be encouraged to trust God in the midst of, of their difficulty. And then uh, down the road, they're the one who, ones who will stand up and talk about all that God has done and share their enthusiasm and their excitement for what uh, God has done. So in praise, we tell others what God has done. All of our attention is focused on the God who delivers, the God who saves, the God who heals, the God who forgives. And it's not really about the details of our problem, and it's not about us at all. I ran across a episode in the life of C.S. Lewis. Lewis wrote a lot of different things. He was a brilliant man. He was an Oxford Don and taught literature, taught medieval literature at Oxford. He was a skeptic, a classic skeptic, and he, but he eventually became a believer, and he wrote some uh, very good books, some not so good perhaps, but one of the things he says in his testimony is that when he was young, he had a problem with God. 
And I can relate to this because one time when I was young and I was witnessing to somebody and talking about God, our purpose in life is to glorify God, and says, you know what, God's conceited. He just wants us to give him the big head and constantly tell him how great and wonderful he is. Well, that's how an unbeliever responds, and that's kind of like how C.S. Lewis responded, that God just seemed to be somebody that, that he wanted everybody talking about him all the time. But he came to realize that in the first point of the uh, larger catechism, if you've ever said it, you know this, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And he realized that glorifying God and enjoying him are two sides of the same coin. That to glorify God, you have to enjoy God. Think about the things that you enjoy in life. Let's say it's a Saturday afternoon and you're sitting around with a couple of friends and you're watching a football game. And there's this great play, and there's a, there, oh, there was a great play this last weekend where I forget what game it was, but there, there was an interception in the end zone and they ran it all the way back, full 105 yards to score a touchdown. And what do you do? You say, wait, look at this. They're going to show the replay. You, you, you can't miss this. You start talking about it. You're excited about it. And you want to share that with somebody else. What are you doing? You're glorifying what that play, pay, pay, uh, player just did. You're talking about him. And, um, and that's what it means. You enjoy the game and you talk about it. We talk about the things that we enjoy. So here's the point. Do you talk about God? If we enjoy God, are we excited about God? Do we talk about God? Do we talk about the things that he's done in our life? Or we say, oh, somebody's going to think I'm a fanatic. Somebody's going to think I've, I've just gone off the deep end in my relationship with the Lord. But if we're to enjoy God, then that should be manifested in the things that we talk about, that God is important in our life. Maybe you can think back to a time when you were uh, dating your spouse and you were uh, falling in love and you wanted to talk about it to other people because you enjoyed that wonderful time you, you spent with this person. And so that's the idea that is part of of glorifying God. We all have things we like. It may be a movie. It may be music. It may be um, a, a, a book. It may be football or food or a restaurant, and we talk about it. That's what it means to glorify God is to let people know that you can't add glory to God because he has infinite glory. He is intrinsically glory, glorious. But what we do when we glorify him is we tell others about who he is and what he has done, and the knowledge of God spreads, and that brings glory to him. For example, if you were to, let's go back to football again, if you had some guy who's a good football player, but Nobody ever talked about him. No sports writer ever wrote him up, and he didn't ever get spoken about in the halftime shows. Nobody ever showed any, any replays of what he did. Then nobody would know who he was. He would not be glorified. But when all of a sudden somebody recognizes him and sees his talent and they start talking about him, he becomes a subject to special reports during the halftime show and in the uh, later sports, uh, sports shows. 
then he's being glorified. And it is telling other people about who he is and what he has done. That's what, that's what praise is. So we look at Psalm 50. What we see in the superscript is that this is a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was one of the Levites, choir directors that David appointed over all of the musicians. So that tells you that this is, this is a man of the quality of a Leonard Bernstein. Okay, he is absolutely brilliant. He is a musical genius, and he's going to be over these enormous orchestras and and choirs of the Levites, and he's going to be writing the music that will go along with these with these hymns and these um, uh, these psalms. So as he he writes, the context of Psalm fifty is that he's bringing an indictment against the Israelites in terms of their lack of praise. Okay, he's going to indict them for their lack of praise. And so he sets this up as if it were a court case, and he's going to bring a charge. He's going to represent God as bringing a charge, an indictment against the nation. And in the first six verses, he describes who's in the courtroom. So imagine that the courtroom is here in West Houston Bible Church, and God comes in, and God is up at the front, and he is the judge. Now, who else is in the courtroom? The mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. He's the focal point in the courtroom. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. He shall call to the heavens above. Remember, Moses would call upon the heavens and the earth as a witness to the covenant. By that, I believe that that's a metonymy for those who inhabit the heavens and those who inhabit the earth. The angels are in the heavens and human beings are the sentient beings on the earth. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. So he's bringing in the angels and others to be witnesses in the courtroom as the evidence is brought forth against, against Israel. He says, gather my saints together to me. That would be Israel. Those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. So he's now going to sit and, and judge Israel. And starting in verse 7, God is going to bring uh, two indictments against Israel. In verse 7, we have the the first indictment, uh, which is has to do with the fact that they are just formally worshiping God. They're going through all the motions. They're doing the right sacrifices on the right days, but it's not really about the sacrifices because they think that God 
needs these sacrifices. That was a very pagan idea. That was what you found in paganism, that the gods of the pagans needed those sacrifices. They they needed to be fed. They needed uh, the water, the libations, the wine, in order to satisfy themselves because they had all of these basically human needs. And so God says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. See the language here. I am God, your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices. See, you're doing the right thing at the right time. Or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house nor goats out of your folds. See, what he's getting to there as he begins to shift in, in verse 10 is recognizing that, that their mentality was that somehow God needed them to provide food for him. The problem is they need to recognize God doesn't need them. They need God. And so that's the point of the, the indictment is he's not going to rebuke them because they're going through and applying the law. But he says, I don't need your bulls and I don't need your goats because every verse 10, every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. We often recite that verse, say God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He can certainly provide for my need. That's not the context of the verse. The context of the verse is that God is saying, I don't need what you have. I own all, I have all the livestock in the world. I can satisfy these needs if I had them. I don't need your worship. I, God is not dependent upon us. He is the creator, and, the, and he is not dependent upon the creature. And he says, I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine in all its fullness. I can go out and take care of myself. I am independent. So what we see here is they're going through the forms of the sacrifices, but without the right meaning. So they're doing the right thing for the wrong reason. And we've learned this along the way, is that a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong, a wrong thing done in a wrong way is wrong, only a right thing done in the right way. And that means a right thing done with the right motivation and the right mental attitude. So when we just go through the motions, when we just show up at church, when we just sit down and take notes and it's all just routine and we go through the forms, but our heart's not in it, it's not really changing our lives, then that's what we refer to as formalism. That's what happens in so many churches all around the country, all around this city, all around the world. You have so many churches that, as I've pointed out in the worship series, they recite these great and wonderful creeds and have no idea what they mean. They say they believe these things, but they don't have any idea how that belief should change the way they think or the way they live. They just recite them pro forma. And it really means nothing to them. It's very uh, superficial. So now God is going to tell them how to change things, how to fix it. Verse uh, 14, he says, Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. 
Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Now, this is really the heart of what this, this psalm is about. He's talking about the fact that the solution to this formalism, this superficial going through the motions uh, relationship with him is going to be resolved by them humbling themselves before him. And that begins with thanksgiving. And so what he's talking about here is a sacrifice of praise. That language is used. It's used in the New King James in Jeremiah 33, 11. It's also used in Hebrews uh, chapter 13. And the idea here of thanksgiving, the word in the Hebrew is toda. If you've been to Israel with me, one of the things that you learn right away is how to say uh, thank you, and that is the word toda. And if you say thank you very much, it's toda rabah. Rabah means a you know something great or something large, and so it's it's big thanks or something like that. But it's thank you very much. So this is a toda, and it's a form of of um, of a psalm. And so a sacrifice here is really a thanksgiving offering. Now, in order to thank God, to truly thank God for what we have, we recognize that we don't deserve it. What's the f- what goes along with recognizing you don't deserve what God has given you? It's a recognition of our sinfulness. It's a recognition that, that we are not only unworthy, but if God did what he should righteously do, we should be immediately consigned to the lake of fire. But rather than punishing us, which we deserve because we're sinners and an affront to his righteousness and justice, God is kind to us and he's gracious to us. And so when we think about that, that I, I didn't deserve this at all, and God provided this for me, it should humble us. And as we, and, and what is humility? We've been teaching this in, on um, Thursday night. Humility is submitting to God's authority. So, see, the problem that they have is they're not submitting to God's authority. They are living life independently of God and just going through the motions but they're not, they do not have a mental attitude of true dependence upon God and submission to his word. So the first line there says to offer to God thanksgiving. Now, if you were going to bring a thanksgiving um, sacrifice to God, what you're recognizing is, first of all, that there was a situation in your life and you cried out to God to deliver you, to help you, to strengthen you. And God answered your prayer and he delivered you, he healed you, he forgave you, he rescued you, whatever it is. And now, according to the Mosaic Law, you have to do something publicly in response to what God has done. And so now you're going to go uh, to the temple and it's called a sacrifice of praise because it's going to cost you something. Now, we don't have this in the New Testament, but you can make a parallel and come up with some applications. 
But you would first of all have to do what? See, we went through the sacrifices somewhat briefly. First, you have to bring a reparation uh, or sin offering. And so that's going to cost you something. You're going going to bring a bull or a goat, and you're going to slaughter that. That's going to cost you some money to bring bring this animal and you're going to slaughter that animal and then second there has to be a second sacrifice which is the burnt offering and so this animal is going to be put on the killed you're going to have to slit its throat and that animal is going to be put on the brazen altar and the fire lit and some of us have done this when we're trying to just grill our afternoon lunch and we just burned everything up because we got on a phone call or something. And that's what happens in that burnt offering. Everything burned up and ascended to God. And it's a picture now, my sin's been forgiven, the reparation offering. Now I'm dedicating myself completely to God. And all of me, everything belongs to him. And then after you do that, there is going to be a a fellowship offering, the peace offering. And now when you do that, you're going to bring, let's say you're going to bring a bull and you're going to kill the bull. The Levitical priest will uh, eviscerate the bull and clean it out and skin it. And then he is basically roasted, cooked, barbecued on the big grill on top of the brazen altar. And then what happens? Then the priest, you share the meal with everybody. It's a picture of now I have fellowship with God and because peace has been restored with God and because he has done these things for me, then everybody gets to benefit from this and there's blessing by association. And so the priests eat, the poor eat, your friends and everybody who's around in the temple at the time gets to partake of this. It's just a big banquet and big barbecue. And then you will stand up and you will make a public declaration of what God did for you. Now, we're going to kind of switch that around a little bit. We're going to eat first, and then we're going to do the Thanksgiving afterwards, but it's the same basically idea. We eat together because we have have fellowship with God, and because we are all in fellowship with God, we have fellowship with one another. And so God says the solution to this in verse 14 is to offer to God thanksgiving, and pay your vows to the Most High. And then what does God say in verse 15? Call upon me in the day of trouble. That's the first part of a declarative praise psalm. I cried out to God, and I, I was in the pit, or I was, I, I was ill, or my enemies surrounded me. But I called to God in the day of trouble, and God says, I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me by telling others. Because that tells people that I am real and I act in their lives and I intervene in your daily situations and your circumstances, and that is going to strengthen and encourage everybody. But what happens if you don't? Okay, one of the ways that the poor were taken care of is they got to come to the temple and and feed off of these sacrifices. So if everybody's coming every day and and you're having these these sacrifices and peace offerings, and the poor get fed. But if everybody's apostate and nobody's coming to praise God, then the poor are going hungry, and the priests are begging. And this is what happened during the times of Isaiah and Jeremiah as well, and a lot of what they write uh, relates to that kind of a thing. In fact, um, 
you have a reference to this in Jeremiah 33, 11, the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the voice of those who say, give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good. And that's what we're emphasizing and praying is God is good. He has done this for me. For his loving kindness is everlasting. And that's a word you find again and again when these praise psalms, they focus, especially the descriptive praise psalms, focus on the character of God. And they talk about these various attributes of God. And this is, this is the word hesed. It says that his hesed, his covenant faithful love toward me is everlasting. And of those who bring a thank offering, and in the New King James it translated that as a sacrifice of praise. I took this from the New American Standard. And those who bring a thank offering into the house of God, house of the Lord, for I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were at the first. And so then there is a warning in verse 16 as we go on into the... um, Under this psalm, the second problem was a problem of hypocrisy. The wicked. Now, the wicked, this is not a term for believers. This is a term for the unbelievers. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth? Have you ever noticed that that when certain things are happening socially around us, that all of a sudden the Houston Chronicle and these other liberal rags will come out and the first thing they do is they go run to the most liberal pastors and preachers who aren't biblical Christians at all and they say, well, what do you think about this? There was a great event that occurred about election night and uh, it was a John Culberson, Representative Culberson's uh, lost his re-election that seat got flipped to the Democrats. And he had Ed Young, Pastor Ed Young from Second Baptist Church. Dr. Young was there, and he was asked to close in prayer. But when Dr. Young got up, he's gotten pretty feisty in his 80s. He said, the Democrat Party is not a party anymore. It's a godless religion. And he went on talking about that for about five minutes. And, of course, the liberal press excoriated him for that. And they had to go out and they got the false teachers, the, the liberals, the, the not really Christian crowd, the wicked, to say, well, what do you think about what Dr. Young said? And they said, well, we'll pray for him. And, you know, they would quote some scripture that would, you know, bolster their pseudo-humility. And that's what these guys are doing. God is confronting the, the wicked and saying, what right have you to quote my scripture? What right have you to talk about what is in my word and to twist it and to misuse it and to abuse it, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? When you saw a thief, you consented with him, and you've been a partaker with adulterers. God does not mince words. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silent. See, God didn't say anything, so they thought that it was okay with God. They thought that because God didn't strike them with a lightning bolt that they must be okay and that he was giving him permission, giving his permission. 
He said, you thought that I was just like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. This is the divine discipline on that generation. And he says, verse 22, now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. See, to offer praise isn't just saying the right things. Praise comes from somebody who is really spending time in their day-to-day walk with the Lord, thinking about how God is, is involved in the things that are happening. Someone who's focusing on God, where God is at the center of their thoughts and their life, and so they think theocentrically about the things that are going on around them. And so to do that, then you see God involved, and that brings praise to your lips because you understand the work of God in your life. So whoever offers praise glorifies me, and it doesn't glorify God because God is conceited and he just wants people to talk about him, but he receives glory when other people learn about who he is and turn to him. It's it, The purpose of praise is not only to talk about what God did, but its purpose is to teach and instruct others and to encourage and strengthen others who may be going through a similar set of circumstances. Whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. And so God is talking about what will what they will learn. They will grow closer to him as a result of that. So the person who is genuinely uh, praising God recognizes that he's the one in need of God, that God doesn't need his sacrifice. God doesn't need my praise. God doesn't need these things. He is totally self-sufficient and independent, but I need God. And because I need God, I am going to tell people what he has done for me. So the solution for formalism, the solution to hypocrisy is humility and walking closely with God and learning to be dependent upon him in, in every, everything. And, and part of that, it's interesting, the word toda, which is used for a thank offering, it's used for thanksgiving. It's also a word that is used and translated in Leviticus to mean confession. Because when we're thanking God, we must also be humbling ourselves and recognizing that we don't deserve him. So it's interesting in Hebrew, you have words that have this this kind of double, uh, double nuance uh, uh, to them. So that provides the solution. Now, when we talk about praise and we talk about these different psalms, there's two types of praises. Two types of psalms have been classified. One they call declarative praise, and the other is called descriptive praise. Declarative praise is giving thanks for something that God has done. Uh, uh, Declarative praise is a uh, a response to something that God has done. So, so we give thanks to God. Thanksgiving is directed toward God, and we thank him for what he has done. 
And the declarative praise is a response and talks about to others about what is God, God has done. Then there are some other psalms that we'll look at that are descriptive praise. And they just talk about God's attributes, God's character. It's not grounded necessarily in a circumstance or a, a situation. So legitimate praise then becomes grounded in a person's personal spiritual life and relationship with God. It grows out of their private prayer life, their reflection upon who God is and what he is doing in their lives, uh, and that God is at the center of the life. It's interesting. I've run across this five or six different places in the last few months. And in, in, when you read the rabbis and rabbinical, often they use a lot of hyperbole. So this is a hyperbolic statement, but it gets the point across. They said if there are three people sitting at a table, you can think about the last time you had lunch with folks or what you were talking about. They say if three people sit at a table and dine together and they have no words of praise between them for the Lord and they do not speak any words of Torah, it is if they were eating with pagan gods. That conversation is not any different from a conversation and a dinner that unbelievers can have. That for believers, our friendship is grounded in who God is and what he's done for us. And so for it to be a distinctly Christian fellowship, then something is said about who God is, what he has done. We talk about the word. I've got friends. I'm spent years with a lot of pastors, as you can imagine. From the time I was in high school, I have known a lot of pastors. And there's one thing I noticed early on, that nearly every pastor I know loves to talk about the Bible. They love to talk about theology, and they love to talk about the Lord. I've run across one or two, and they'd rather talk about football than the Lord. I'm not so sure they should be pastors, but that's not my call. But that's the difference, and and we can take that to heart. What is going on in those situations? God is concerned about our giving of thanks and our praise. In Psalm 102.4, we read, where the tribes go up, when the tribes go up to Jerusalem, go to the temple, the tribes of the Lord to the testimony of Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. And what do we do when we're there? Well, let's turn over. We're in Psalm 50. Turn back just a few pages, and we'll look at Psalm 22 briefly before we wrap things up tonight. Psalm 22. Now, Psalm 22 is mostly known by us as a messianic psalm, and that it is. And it begins in the first verse, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes this psalm on the cross. But I want to turn down to look at verse 22. Verse 22 to the end of the psalm is a declarative praise section. So we can learn something from this. It says, I will declare your name to my brethren. This is quoted also in Hebrews. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. See, praise was in Israel was something that was to be done 
in the public square, not to be something that was kept in private, that you just talked to your friend or texted a friend and used PTL or something like that. No, it was something that was thought out, and you would make a statement in public. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. That is a command. The word hallel is used more than any other word in, in, in the Psalms. And it's used over and over again, and it's used as a command. This Praise is not an option for believers. And yet, if you think about what happens in many churches, there's very, very little opportunity for the body of believers to publicly express praise. Part of the and churches that do it, unfortunately, don't do it real well. So we're going to work on this, something we're going to uh, improve on. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. See, we glorify him by telling of his mighty deeds and fear him. Because when you learn who God is and what he does, that builds your respect and fear for him. And in verse 24, for he is not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. See, he's not doesn't get into details. He just says God does not ignore those who are going through difficult times. It's just a summary statement. Nor has he hidden his face from them, but when he cried to him, see, I told you that one of the elements is it starts off, I cried to God. So this is the cry. When he cried to him, he heard. God answered my prayer. Verse 25, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. See, when you praise God in the Old Testament, you would make a vow. That's not your normal tithes. That's, that's a special gift, a thanksgiving offering that you would bring to, to the temple. And so you would bring that along with all these sacrifices. So it was a, a costly little event. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. That's what I was talking about a minute ago. When you have all the different offerings, you end up with the peace offering then the poor will be fed. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. Now, this is what happened with Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. We know that Hannah first went to the temple, and she's crying to the Lord that uh, because she's barren, and if God would give her a child, then she will uh, give that child back to God. And after she becomes pregnant and gives birth to Samuel, we read that when she had weaned him in 1 Samuel one twenty four, she took him up with her with three bulls. She's not a poor person. She's not impoverished. Three bulls, one ephah of flour, that's like a bushel or more, a flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. They're going to have a meal. And there were a lot of people who fed and feasted that day because of uh, Hannah's praise to God for what he had done. And this is incumbent upon us, Hebrews 13, 15. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise. That's talking to church-age believers. 
that we should be praising God continually. That is the fruit of our lips. We should be talking about who God is and what he has been doing, especially in giving thanks to his name, that is for his character, for his essence, and for what he has done. And then notice how it still involves the same thing. It says, but do not forget to do good and to share. When God provides for you, don't go hoard it in the bank. Go provide for others. Be generous. Do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. And then I want to close here with Ephesians five eighteen to 20. In Ephesians five 18, we're told, be filled by means of the Spirit. Verse 19 says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's the first result of being filled by means of the Spirit with his word. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That's not singing in your heart to the Lord. It's singing and then making melody in your heart because you're joyful. And then in verse 20, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the foundation for what we should be talking about and thinking about on this time when we celebrate our national thanksgiving is reflecting upon the blessings of God. Now, next time I'm going to come back and we're going to talk about what it means, what we mean by these blessings of God. It fits in with what we've studied about the blessing, uh, bless the Lord who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in uh, Ephesians 1.3. And so these will connect together. And so we'll come back next time. And that will be the second part on what it means to give thanksgiving and to praise. And I encourage you to think about how God has worked in your life the last year. And like I said, it doesn't have to be long. It shouldn't be long. Uh, it doesn't have to be uh, uh, anything that's that's real formal, just just identifying God has really taught me a lot this last year, and I interceded in several events in my life, and I learned about his grace and his sovereignty and his providence, just something along those lines. Father, thank you for this time together. We're thankful as a nation, as Americans, that we have the heritage of of this nation, that we were founded by men and women who loved you, who knew your word, whose lives were shaped by by your word, and understood that freedom is not free, but freedom is purchased for us. And our spiritual freedom was purchased for us by Christ on the cross, and that our political, our civic freedom was purchased by many who gave their lives on battlefield and war after war the last 200 years, securing our freedom. And this is in great jeopardy today. Father, you've interceded in so many ways in the past in this nation, and we're certainly not deserving of any of your uh, grace or goodness or benevolence. But we do pray for uh, that we would not be hindered by government interference. And there are so many who hate you and who hate the Bible and who hate uh, the absolute morals that you have established and are in rebellion against it, and they hate us because we represent you. 
And yet, Father, we still have many believers who love you and who are witnessing and who are taking the gospel around the world and supporting missionaries. And we pray for their sake, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of those who are taking your word around, for those who are growing as believers, that you might continue to give us the freedoms that we have, that your word may go forth unhindered. And, Father, we do pray that there would be a change in this nation. We don't know how that would happen or what would be necessary, but we've seen it happen in the past, for example, with those in Nineveh responding to the preaching of Jonah, that your word would transform the culture as it has in the past. And, Father, we pray for us that whether that happens or not, we might walk closely with you and humble ourselves under your mighty hand that you might in turn exalt us. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.